Hello, Sam. You, you're still on mute, Sam. You haven't unmuted yourself. <laughs> I'll just let you mute me. Let's <laughs> again. Welcome to the Backroom Staff Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Backroom Staff Podcast. This week, I am joined by Sam Bowering, the under-18 sports scientist at Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club. Hello, Sam. How are you, mate? You okay? Yeah, not too bad yourself. Yeah, not too bad, then. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for coming on. And again, you were, I've said it to like three or four people because I've reached out to you all at, at the same time. But again, you're really enthusiastic about when I came out with the idea of doing this. And yeah, so thank you. Thank you for that as well. No, no problem. I think it's a unique thing that you're trying to do is like showcase people around the clubs. And I think it gives other people an opportunity to see what goes on behind the scenes. And hopefully it has a long lasting effect from that. Yeah. Cheers. That's kind of, that's obviously exactly what the idea is. So let's, let's get started with being a sports scientist. So what exactly is a sports scientist in a quick little three minute elevator job description? Yeah, so mostly in terms of sports sciences as a whole, it's a lot of the time is monitoring training loads of players and determining out on match, match figures. Um, so a lot of my role is to make sure that in terms of training, it's progressive. Obviously, from an academy perspective, you're looking to try and develop players for their on-field performance in relation to yeah. football. So obviously, you take a lot of, um, so like the typical thing that you would mostly associate my job is with GPS. So obviously, that's where you've got the units sat back on a, yeah. on a player's back. Um, and also that gives us various amount of measures, which in my job is to display them for the coaches and make a reasonable understanding of how that relates to a game. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the easiest ones is total distance covered. Obviously, what's that in training compared to a match, which can show an intensity or a volume amount. But also on the flip side of that is then the gym aspects that you can associate with sports scientists crossing over within an S&C um, role. Obviously, from that perspective, is monitoring the gym programs from there, prescribing exercises for players that might feel sore or stiff. Another thing of athletic performance. Um, so overall, sports science is very much playing the playing a lot of fields. It's mostly having a lot of fingers in different pies. Most of sports scientist perspective, and uh, you've got to work closely with the physios because you've got players coming back from injury. Obviously, physios need to have an understanding of what a player usually is capable of doing on field. And then yeah. sort of the stuff that I collect from a GPS perspective gives it a number and a target for players to hit during that process. Yeah. In my opinion, the, the term sports scientist is relatively new in sport. So I'd say it's probably been around like maybe 10, 15 years. What was the sport miss? What was sports missing before this role became about? Yeah. Or what made, think- or what made that role available? Yeah, I think it obviously, if you look at it from a financial perspective, obviously, in terms of support, I, I'm i mostly a supporting staff member. I'm not a key figure like the coach. Like I'm not in front of the cameras or anything like that, whereas everything's for support. And obviously, mostly when you're going through the past years of football or rugby, obviously, it's trying to find the answers. So yeah. why is an injury happened? Why is that person pulled a hamstring? Why is that person managed to lose his footing? in terms of snapping his ACL without yeah. no one being around near him and he wasn't hardly moving. So it's that sort of mostly, that's most of the questions that have come from. And then obviously from a university aspect, um, obviously with the technology that advances, 
I think that's been one key material as to how sports science has developed and how it's modelled become, I say, popular. Depends on who, which people you meet. But in terms of how that's projected and brought forward, obviously the demands of the technology, obviously the way that you can how now have a unit sat on your back and it doesn't bother a player as if it's like that natural of their routine, whether that's training or matches. Whereas if you go into the 90s, obviously everything was done on a guesstimation or yeah. based on previous experiences without sort of finding new information and what that new information can help performance with. So I think that's most of the way sports science is trying to drive things. You mostly, very rare, you'll come across sports science, strength and conditioning from a performance aspect where they'll, more or less every person you'll see within a, Within an organisation, they'll always be trying to improve the standard, whether that's a field standard, a gym-based standard, or an overall culture perspective. You mentioned the coaches there that you don't see on the that we see in the front of the camera, and that you're the sports staff. And you said when you were describing the role that uh, your, or you might have said it to me off camera actually, was your role is to present the data to them in a way that they can digest it well and it's helpful to them. Yeah. So what kind of process is that? Yeah, I think um, obviously like most professional sports, the most of the head coaches that you work with, whether that's football, rugby, cricket, they've all come from a practical playing background from being a professional player themselves and then also stepped into the coaching route. So obviously when you're deciding on what you're going to put out in terms of the coach, in terms of the information you collected, you've got to understand what that, what ticks that coach and what engages him within that report. So, for example, given these perspective, you've got 26 players training, but every 26 players, I can mostly give out eight key variables that, to me, are important to yeah. make um, the training process and how, what players need to do physically require. Now, if you think from a coaching perspective, you've got to try and figure out what's going to be the more important thing for him based on that day or based on the training week. So yeah. if I just threw numbers out and it just said, this guy's done 4,000 metres, he's got 26 players of different parameters because obviously different playing positions. So then he's like, well, what does that mean to me? So does he need that in a chart format, which displays the highest total distance to the lowest? Or is he more of a data person? So he might like the numbers, or he might like this is your number, but this is the percentage that he usually covers in the game. So then that gives a coach an idea as how hard he's worked compared to a match intensity. Yeah. So it's understanding the coach's perspective and how that will help him inform the training process. Because obviously when you're a supporting staff member, as much as you're there to support the players for their own development, you also need to support the coaches in terms of directing the training to reduce injury risk, but also keep improving performance. And that's mainly how you sort of evaluate and report that is purely based on the coaches that you work with. Yeah. Um, so there's different coaches where they like the visual cues of bar charts. Some like it in terms of scatter graphs. Um, some will only want to see it training compared to matches. So it's very much rarely, it depends on the coach and sort of depending on that has been how you can sort of influence that. Like I've got all my own information that I think is important. Yeah. You've got to understand the coach and the coach's philosophy and how he works as to how that information is going to be relevant because then that, you want that information that you that you collect to be the most relevant and to be applicable. Otherwise, the job that you're doing is going to be irrelevant and pointless. Yeah, and you mentioned that 
you work with the GPS and you mentioned different positions that one player might run more than a different position. I'm assuming that's kind of also dependent on what the coach's instructions are. So is there times when maybe you see a player or the coach sees some of that data and sees that a player's running maybe too much in a sense, as weird as that can sound, kind of the going out of position? Is that something which coaches like and something you have to deal with? Yeah, I think it's obviously... I think it's look at there's two sort of spectrums to it. So obviously from an academy perspective, you've got a lot of players that um, are still trying to figure out their role, their positioning within a team. Obviously, certain players develop at certain rates from a physical perspective and also from a mental perspective. Obviously, sometimes you have natural people, especially in football, who just have always been a defender in their life. Yeah. So they ne- know they're never going to be up front. However, a centre half, a centre back's positional demands is completely different to a right back. Yeah. Now, most probably, if you look at sort of 10, 15 years ago, the way a full back played compared to a full back that plays now in terms yeah. of intensity and the demand of them, because like, especially if you look at the way Liverpool play, where they play with two high full backs yeah. and then required to get up and down. So, obviously, from that perspective, you've got to train academy players for every position possible so you can look at sort of more team averages. Yeah. Whereas when you're mostly working with first team players where they've already got established positions and you sort of understand that they might have the potential to play in other positions, mm. but more or less they've already they've always got that one position that you're always going to be like position specific for. And that's yeah. where like the GPS that I can collect can make them demands and understand which demand for each position requires what physical detriment or what physical performance is needed. You can go into quite detail of it, but obviously the standard of academy practice, coaching practice to then professional practice is completely different. Obviously, with the first team, you're looking at so football, for example, you're yeah. looking at 40 games minimum. Now, an academy player or under 18 down is most probably playing maximum one game a week, two games a week, because obviously they've got school games, they've got yeah. everything else that goes on. So you're already looking at that type of demand as to what you've got to try and train a potential 15-year-old trying to get into a 19-year-old time in four years' time when he's yeah. 19. How are you going to train him within a four-year window? At the end of that window, is it sometimes to look at and make that decision whether to keep a player on? Are you looking at that progress that they've made up while they've been in the under-18s data-wise to see what sort of the stats and the numbers are progressing there rather than just a performance-based sort of thing? Yeah, I think obviously when it comes to sort of the GPS side side of things, it's not a performance indicator. Yeah. Like one bit, because obviously depending on your position, depends on the workload that you have. So for example, um, from a football perspective, if you look at the way Leeds United commonly play, it's very much, it's very much up and down. Yeah. So in that relationship of understanding what that GPS means and what the data means, you've got to understand the game and understand why that's happened. Sometimes a player isn't moving up and down because he knows he's got the best player against him and he yeah. knows he doesn't want to leave space in behind because he knows how quick that player is. So he's yeah. going to sit down and drop off. Whereas depending on the team's philosophy, if you're playing a high team press, then that's going to have a different style to what Leeds do because Leeds will play high press when they can ultimately we know that it's going to be length to length yeah. and that's why you see a lot of the Leeds games in the same yeah. whereas if you're looking at a lot of the Liverpool style 
you know that as soon as you lose, as soon as Liverpool lose it, you know they're going to press you. So yeah. then you're looking at short, sharp movements, whereas Leeds you're looking at longer based running movements. Um, so obviously the GPS can pick up all them types of different data, and that allows us to understand right when we play high pressing teams, what do we actually get? And then that's where we can then look at that one individual player and then look at his physical performance based on the style of play that's happening in that game. And then that sort of can determine how he has maybe progressed physically. Obviously, we do a lot of gym-based work, which allows us to quantify and measure controlled performance markers. So like, for example, a current movement jump, um, a standing broad jump, obviously typical gym-based movements, things of that nature. But in terms of the on-field work, sort of players will be given GPS individual reports and how that relates to previous games for them, whether that's based on a positional demand or whether that's based on a technical demand as to how the game is. But everything's got to be and related back to the game because that's how players will only understand and coaches will understand how that data is. And yeah. for you to give that information is really important because playing Man City 5-0 loss, for example, can be a completely physical different physical demand as to playing Derby County and winning 2-0 for example so yeah yeah you've just got to take into more context and for the reasons as to why what's happened yeah you mentioned earlier that there's also kind of you look at the movements that maybe prevent injuries or trying to work out why a player's got injured so I seem to remember on the podcast that you were on a few months ago, Football Fit Federation, you mentioned there something I seem to remember about a player maybe having some foot pain or an ankle pain. And you look at, is it part of your role then as well to look at like why that pain's coming and then if it's something to do with their running technique and then working on that with them as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So obviously that's where, when we talk about support staff, obviously there's a team within that support group. So obviously... There's people like myself who is like an SNC coach, sport scientist who can who looks who looks over gym-based movement plans and programs for that to enhance yeah. performance. Balls at the same time, you've got physios that usually deal with the issues that players will come out with. Yeah. Obviously, physios will determine what level that is, whether that's muscular tightness where they need to have a longer stretch, or it's muscular weakness because they're not particularly strong enough in that area because of the amount of games that I have in. Muscles, muscle weakness has to show up a little bit more. So it's a lot more varying in terms of understanding that players need. So if a physio is like says, oh, we've got, for example, Tyler, Tyler's struggling yeah. with his hip is quite tight. Um, what's his gym program looking like today? And the physio will sort of yeah. give his recommendation based on, right, actually, can you put him to a regression but still allow him to load up to make sure his hip flex stays strong, for example, say. Okay, yeah. Um, so there's that type of communication aspect from that. Um, and also then you've got to relate that to coaches because sometimes if the player comes out um, not looking the best in the warm-up, for example, or he's looking a bit slow and groggy, he's then having that communication skill with the coaches to then display that type of communication just go and look, just let you know, in his wellness this morning we collected, but he's not had great sleep. He's quite tight in his hips. So it might be worth talking to him just see how he is. Because yeah. That's just like the nature of the beast. So there's like little things that we can collect and make that sort of decision-making process go better and making sure the player stays on field. For example, we can, like said about if there's foot pain, if a person's feeling stiff in their car, then yeah. we go through a lot of different range of measurements to make sure that understand 
why that's happened so we can look back at the GPS data. So for example, like most people, the hardest training session that you have means you've got to recover harder. So yeah. then it's looking back at, well, have we made sure we allowed him to recover well? Does he need an ice bath for that to work for him? Does he need potentially a strength stretching session or does he need a mobility session? So there's a lot of things that you've got to sort of play in your mind and obviously that comes with, from experience, you just gather a lot of ideas and information. Um, you can remember things that you've had with previous players that can be fairly common symptoms. So obviously with footballers, I know as soon as I get them to open their legs out from a box-to-box distance, I know that relatively the next day they're going to come back with sort of hamstring bones, so delayed yeah. onset muscle soreness. So I already know in my mind what I need to do within the warm-up and sort of the activation preparation for the players before they go out onto the field. That's what I might need to focus upon just to yeah. get their mind clear and get rid of stiffness in their mind. Um, so it's obviously coming from experience as to how you work with them players. Obviously, understanding some players have previous injury issue, issues, which when they enter the building, they've got to go through their own 20-minute 20, 20 prep to make sure that their injured muscles that they've had previously or whether they've had injured joint issues and preparing them. Obviously, the physios and myself work closely in terms of the exercise that give yeah. players to make sure that that works for them. Um, but ultimately, it allows that player to get prepared for his own training. That sort of, especially from an 18s perspective, it allows them to get an understanding of what they need to do to look after their body. Yeah. From a recovery perspective, and obviously, when you're looking at it from the football side of things, when you make it as a first team player, you've got so many games within a season. You've got to learn how to look after your body. Yeah. And um, so that's like a massive key thing is when players come into the building, it's getting them to understand what's what is sore. Mm. or what is pain yeah understanding whether that's a trainable pain or whether that's a trainable soreness which from an academy perspective is massive and um, because obviously when you've got teenagers such as the role that i have at under 18s a lot of them don't know what signals they get from their body because obviously they're already physiologically changing yeah. into a into a man yeah and i guess as well when they're at under 18s level as you said, they're still going through some education, so they have other things they have to do. Whereas at a first team level, they can just go sit with the legs up and rest if they need to. Yeah, it's it's a fairly it's a fairly weird process because obviously you've got a lot of, especially with academy football, you have children doing day release programs with football academies, so where they take a day out of school to work within the academy on a full day so they get the full experience of what it looks like from a professional perspective and it gives you a good idea to work with players without having the timing issues because obviously when you've got academy footballers obviously they've got their education to look after which is the first and foremost thing for most academies to make sure players have the right education behind them in case anything crops up within their playing history where an injury can potentially stop their career from happening so yeah so from a especially from an academy perspective got to work around a lot of logistical issues when it comes to under 18s obviously you've got to take into account players from different areas different backgrounds yeah what them backgrounds actually means that player um so obviously three previous roles that i've had at football clubs the three clubs have a lot of different players from different backgrounds so at hull we had a lot when i was working at hull cities academy sports i predominantly 75 percent of the kids from 
within the academy. People from Goole and the other people from Leeds, Scarborough Way, but yeah. predominantly a lot of people within the local area. My second club, Barnsley, you go into that part and then, because Barnsley sits in the middle of the country, their radius can be 20 minutes when you hit Huddersfield. Or yeah. it can be 20 yeah. minutes when you can hit kids at Leeds in terms of yeah. recruitment. And hit 20, 20 minutes and you go to Sheffield down south. So already then you're looking at three different um, cities with three different cultures of yeah. different players trying to combine and make one team. And obviously you've got to understand their experience, their family background, their educational background, and really get to know the player. And obviously at Wolves, obviously it's further down south. So then you're working with a lot more of the players within different areas where you can work with players from Wales, you can work with players that are Birmingham, you can work with players that are from London or from Bristol. So mm. you're already looking at three massive different cities already without yeah. even thinking about how you, how you work with them children. Obviously, from an education background, you've got to try and understand how each player clicks and how that works for them in terms of their learning experience. Obviously, from a first-team perspective, they already know what they are. They already know they're a professional footballer and because of football so global, they know that obviously they're at this one club, but they also know that there's other opportunities at other clubs. You will find that a lot of, some footballs will go into a lot of details to what they do. So even though when they're at home resting, they'll be analysing football games. They'll yeah. be analysing their own performance or they'll looking at the best player to try and think, right, how can I be like him? Yeah. So like, obviously the most popular one is like Ronaldo. Is everyone everyone hears about all the reports of how hard he works. So then you've got a lot of players that are using that sort of inspiration of going, no, no, even though you've told me to rest, I'm going to go to the gym, but I'm going to go in the spa and make sure I'm recovery to make sure I'm right. So you can get them type of individuals as much as they might not be training, but they still might still might be recovering hard at home. Yeah. And that's obviously another education background itself. Yeah, obviously you're going to have some players that maybe need to understand more the importance of rest sometimes or some people who maybe rest too much, that sort of thing, or don't even do the recovery at home stuff that maybe you've set, I guess. Yeah, sometimes it's you've got to know that individual and know what makes them tick. Like I said, with the coach, you've got when you're working with players, you've got to have that sort of interaction with them. You've got to have that people skill set and communication skill set for players to understand why you're instructing them. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. For players, why? So if you're telling them, oh, you need to go and swim or go for a 30 minute walk, the main thing they need to know why, because you're asking them to do something to their body. And yeah. sometimes they might say, oh, I'm not going to do a 30 minute walk. I'm going to go for a 30 minute bike because they like biking and don't like walking. Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah. like things like that, knowing that individual and what makes them tick. Obviously, when it's uh, from an academy perspective, you've got to try and expose players to them different varieties of recovery modes or yep. different varieties of training modes because the player needs to learn how his body reacts and what works best for him. For yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have. You mentioned there, just before Alassie asked, what, asked the last question, um, your roles at three other clubs, which were Hull City, Barnsley, and, oh, well, not three other clubs, two other clubs, Hull City and Barnsley, and now you're at Wolverhampton Wanderers. You've spoke how different it was from the background, but how different were the roles exactly? Were, I think it was, was it just the academy at Barnsley and at Hull, was it the academy? And this one's more specific at under-18s? Yeah. No, so to be fair, it's been a variety of experiences because of 
because of the way of academy football can be. So when I was at Hull, when I first started at Hull, it was purely academy. But I moved up to the first team as a like sort of a first team assistant slash internship role, which allowed me a massive great experience. Where it was the 2016 Championship playoff where yeah. Modi Army scored the worldie ah, against yeah. Bristol. In, yeah. No, not Bristol. Jeff Wentley. Yeah. Um, so look, I had that experience of going to Wembley, the full experience of going to Wembley, winning at Wembley, that sort of thing from there, and then went back into the academy to then take on a more permanent full-time position at the time yeah. in terms of working with the academy, which in itself came with working with under-9s, under-16s. So with that perspective, that's a lot more of understanding physical development for the players in terms yeah. of, obviously, when you get to a certain age, you've got under-14s, you've got half your group, but nearly six foot, and you have half a five-foot-five. So obviously in terms of strength and conditioning programs and understanding their physical development, how can you improve their physical development when you've got one age group where you've got such a variety of heights. And um, so that in itself was that challenge within the role. And um, when I was at Barnsley, I moved up to more of a under 23 position, yeah. being the head of sports science and medicine, which was a completely different role to what I've had before mainly because we're under 23 footballers, so they're nearly at that end goal where yeah. you can nearly see the peak of the peak of the mountain as to where they want to be, but they're not there yet. And obviously with that, you get, you've got to manage players' behaviours because when you're working in an environment that's maybe under 18s down, players are usually given that affordability of progression in terms of, look, you've got a under 16 where he's got a two-year scholarship. Yeah. He knows he's got two years to develop. Yeah. Whereas you have under 23 players where they've only got a one year contract. So they've got to hit the ground running. They haven't got a chat. They've got, they don't need, they don't want to wait because they know that if they're not in the first team after six months, they know that more than likely they're going to have to drop down a division or they're going to have to go somewhere else to get their opportunity. So did so you ever, yeah. So did you, when that was there ever a problem where you've kind of said to a player, you're pushing yourself too hard, you need to rest and, but like you said, they've got this determination because that fear of being released, has that been detrimental in a sense? I think, to be honest, you're, I don't like to limit people because I think if you put limitations on people, then they will limit themselves. So you've got, when you're in a player of that situation, whether you've got a kid that's coming to the club that's a trialist or whether that's a kid that you know that you've only got a year, a season to deal with, you've got to understand, right, well, one, What's your previous experience of working within SNC? Because you need to know straight away what education they've got behind the gym perspective, the activation perspective, and try and get some sort of immediate images to write, well, what can I do for you as a player to help you progress? And sometimes you're looking at the player and you've got to be honest with them and going, right, okay, so I've seen you in a few training sessions, but you're not fast enough over 10 metres. Yeah. So that's me telling them, being honest and truthful, going, right, we need to work on this and showing them sort of the data behind this, how we can support that and showing them reasons and rationale behind it. Whereas obviously you can work with other players where, for example, fairly fairly common is centre-backs, where obviously you've got an 18, 19-year-old and they're only on a one-year deal, but they've still got the body or frame of an 18, 17-year-old. They're not ready for men's football yet. Yeah, yeah. Then it's getting them to understand as to, well, actually... If you keep running so much in this perspective, you, it's going to give you less chance to put weight on. 
So then that's yeah. giving them more understanding as to, right, okay, so we're going to keep on running this hard because that's the way you are as a player. Great, no problem. But this is what you've got to do after training to put your muscular size on and build your body mass up. So obviously yeah. that's where you've got to put nutritionists and then you've got to work along that side of things to make sure that when you collect GPS data or the SNCs, then make sure they've still got that target in mind. So obviously you're working with that perspective, but also from a, when you're working with under-23s, which obviously I know you're a Leeds fan, mm-hmm. Leeds are very notorious for dropping their first-team players down, but when they yeah. don't get first-team games. So then you've then got to deal with that, with that one player that you know that's got a one-year contract, and he's now not playing because there's four first-teamers have now dropped down. Yeah, yeah. And took his fault. And it might not be because of the way he's trained or the way he's been playing. It's just for... For example, he's a first team player, he's priority, but he needs 45 minutes. That's yep. come from the first team man. So then all of a sudden you've then got to train your mind to be comforting to that player because you know he's fuming. But yep. then you've got to try and make sure that he still keeps working because you've got to say to him, right, let's get you into the next game. So yeah, you can now sense. imagine you've already got you've already so when it comes from just 23, you've already mostly got three different types of players. You've got a player that's coming from the under 18s that's trying to push through to the 23s. Yep. You've got someone in the 23s that's realising that they're not going to progress any further. And then you've got a 23s first team player that's dipping in and out because he's either trained with a first team, but he's playing with the 23s. So that's where, as a sort of a, as a practitioner and as a support staff member, you've got to understand them dynamics and understand different players and their perspective and yeah. how your programming can influence that. Yeah, and you've you've touched on leads quite a bit probably because I'm a Leeds fan mainly, but is it kind of, is it something you take an interest on? You spoke about Liverpool as well and kind of looking at how their players perform and what they're doing as well. Is that something you do is to educate yourself and keep learning? Yeah, massively. I think especially within the role that you're in, if you don't progress, somebody is behind you. And obviously I know I'm in a, I'm in a job that from an outside perspective, it seems like a luxury job of mm. working in football. Obviously, with that, you, you get your stuff behind it where, obviously, time and family and everything else, and you've got your weekends gone. But you, as a self, try and develop as a person, not just, not just as a within your job, but you've got to develop as a person. Obviously, with the influx of money that's coming to football, obviously, the demand of having the best players. So sometimes you're working with players that have come from a different country. So then you've got to have the skill set uh, sometimes to try and speak a little bit of Spanish or a little bit of Italian. Are you te- are you telling so, me that you speak Spanish and Italian to I'm to people here? The most limited person in terms of language. <laughs> <laughs> I literally come out with the one-liners. Um, so, but that's where you've got to have that understanding of that player, and obviously from that perspective, it's then understanding the playing style and how the coaching mannerisms that you give to players. So, yeah. for example, if you want your team to be aggressive, like you've got to think about how you approach them people in terms of how you want them to behave as a team. So if you're looking to be a high-pressing team, if you saw your coach on a sideline going, well, good work, lads, like in a very soft, passionate, or soft but hardly passionate yeah. manner, are you really going to press hard as a team? Yeah. Or are you going to press hard as a team if your manager's shouting press, 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 press? Yeah. So it's having that understanding of positions that people play and sort of the, like you said, the style of play that people have. And obviously from that perspective is then 
from a player perspective, sometimes you've got to help them with that and understand how that process works. Staying on leads, the bit which I'm interested in is, do you, is it something that you kind of want to, and you wonder regarding their recovery times? Because a lot of the metrics that I see about Leeds United is that they outrun every team. And, you know, the question has been from a lot of pundits is, is that sustainable? What does that sustainable, I guess, mean to you? How would you make it sustainable as a sport scientist? Yeah, to be fair, obviously I'm an outsider and Leeds do what they do. Um, obviously, every club has their own way of how they work and how they play and how they train. Obviously, it's a give and take within that. Obviously, as a when you talk about how you educate yourself to get better based yeah. on the previous questioning, like you've got to, like I said before in previous times, you've got to contextualize everything. Yeah. So as much as we like we say about Leeds, and we said earlier about how they play, obviously they've got a very different way of playing if they were going to be playing another team for example on top of their head potentially Burnley for yeah. example yeah, yeah, yeah so that in itself you've you've got to try and understand the context as to what that person's doing and why they're yeah. doing it yeah so for example with Leeds like you said obviously it's been reported as to they've got the most running meters you've got to understand why is why is that in what's that in context of Obviously, is that the way the, play, the management is in terms of how he wants to play as a coach, which when you're a supporting staff, that's what you've got to support and, that, and then that's yeah. where you potentially want to work upon yourself to make sure that the players can meet the coach's demands. Yeah. So that's where, obviously, practitioners like ourselves, obviously, when you go from training grounds to training grounds or pitches away, you get to know them and you try and, obviously, you share ideas or you share thoughts or you get to build up relationships where you you go to different conferences where you see other practitioners within different clubs that you've either previously worked with or someone that you've previously worked with is sat next to a person that you've never come across and you end up yeah. um, exchanging yeah. certain ideas. Um, so obviously it's everything's got to be put into a context as to how that manager works, what that playing style is and the playing philosophy and hopefully your, the job that you put together helps players succeed within that. Obviously, from that perspective, it's just getting a good contextual idea as to how you work across that. And obviously, the greater knowledge you pick up, whether that's from reading, whether that's from picking up insights from other coaches, other managers, to new ideas, to make sure that you can keep going forward into the yeah. trajectory that you want as a, as a career. So it's all, it's all give and take, obviously. Sometimes you want to have a meeting with a certain practitioner that you've always followed his work and he's released a lot of work out. He wants to try and pick his brains, but you've got to have the ability to give something back to him as well. Yeah. And talk about yeah. your experiences and how you've dealt with certain situations, but whether that's been a conflict of interest or not conflict of interest, where you've had to work with a coach who's had a different ideas to what you said. Yeah. And that's where you've got to understand and reflect upon your own practice to know if it's going to work or not. Yeah, I guess what you accidentally said is the conflict of interest it was probably more of a kind of you've said I don't I don't think he's ready for the next game and he's and the coach might have said well I need him is that sort of what you were talking about as conflict no it, it can't it's not always just that sometimes when you like when it comes to academy football it's mostly a little bit easier to manage and control because like there's a developmental process when it comes to under 23s it can be slightly different yeah. Um, obviously, the first team, it can be a lot different because as much as the, 
the coach most of most of the time, as long as you're not um, employed by the coach where you see staff members go around with that one particular coach. Yeah. Obviously, sometimes you're working for the club. So sometimes you're like what information you're giving to the coach regarding a certain player might be differing to the manager's point of view. Yeah. But that's where, at the end of the day, it's the manager's perspective. He's the one that picks yeah. the team. And notoriously, if it's at first team level, it's usually the first team manager that has the front the final of say. everything. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, he's the base of whatever questions comes into him afterwards. So you've got to give your opinion in the right way, but also be acceptant that it's in his hands. And also, I think as well, whether like with a topic that you said, whether that's a player that's not fit to play, sometimes it's down to the player. Yeah. Sometimes players like players want to do. They want to. They want to play. They. You know what I mean. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's you've got to put into context as to what happens. But sometimes it can be with training where, for example, I might say uh, the, the overtrained like we might need a lower day. Whereas that coach is going, no, no, I want two back to back hard days. And it's going yeah. right, okay. But then you've got to then work upon your own drill set and your own experiences as to how you can work across that and try and hopefully by that point if you ever have a sort of conflict I'm saying conflict I think conflict sounds like it's a yeah. boardroom um, but obviously yeah, trying disagree, to think of the right word yeah, if you've got if you've got different views yeah obviously you've got that relationship with the coach as to like I said before about the GPS and understand how that coach works and that's obviously comes with experience and you've got to have that interpersonal skills to understand and also be brave enough and reflective enough to evaluate your own decision making make sure you know why you're going to say what you want to say yeah that that makes sense and like I say I think like it's all about experience and knowing knowing the coach so away from the actual uh, what the job entails more about really you what what put you on the sports scientist path what made you want to choose that to be fair I've been I say I've been fair. Look, I've worked hard for it to happen. Um, obviously, well, obviously we go back from university. So, yeah. obviously, I've, I played professionally at Hull Car. Didn't really make it. Obviously, I had a contract at Hull Car, but obviously, I just wasn't good enough at the time. So, it got to a point where I went to university. Um, over university, it was just something where I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I started most of the professional rugby player mentality of thinking oh, I might be able to go back and play rugby professionally. Obviously, with that experience, most probably allowed me to be in an environment of understanding elite sport perspective. Also, from coming from a rugby league academy yeah. and professionally, and seeing a first team environment. So, obviously, when it came down to the end of my degree and deciding what I wanted to do, I already knew by that point that I wanted to work in elite sport. But I luckily, had an experience in my second year at university as a wet placement, um, and it was sort of let's see. And it was getting to a point where, obviously. From being a professional, I'd always lived in the gym, um, but I've always been on the analysed why things happened within the game. So yeah. performance analysis, and I found out at all that performance analysis just want me because it was I'm a I like to move out. I don't like sitting at a desk, and um, whereas majority of the time within that role, I just found myself sitting at a desk, clipping away at a laptop, and I'm more of a hands-on, practical person who yeah. wants to move around. So that already told me after that, I sort of knew by that point I wanted to be SNC sports scientist. Yeah. Um, and luckily, the university had made links with Hull City. Hull City wanted to upgrade their academy. And then, luckily, with me 
sort of doing well at university in terms of my grades and working fairly closely with the lecturers. And when Hulstice asked for people to come in and work within the academy with a master's built in within that role, I think because of my previous experience of already having experience of working and coaching through primary school work and secondary school work, pretty yeah. much had a full repertoire of being in a professional academy. It sort of just clicked, came in and clicked together at the same time, really. Was it just that the opportunity came to go into football that meant that you didn't go into rugby league as a sports scientist and strength and conditioning? Was that just sort of like something which fell upon you? Or was it that you enjoyed the sports scientist side of football more than it was there in rugby league? No, to be fair, I think it was just more luck. It wasn't as though I was looking to get into football. Um, I knew I wanted to work in elite sport. Yeah. I've always had a massive interest in football from being youngster and everything else. Um, I was just fairly fortunate. I was good at rugby um, at the time. So it was just more fortunate. Obviously, I put myself out there within my second year whilst working in rugby. And obviously, I loved the rugby environment anyway. Um, but in terms of the opportunity of leaving university, doing my master's at the same time and getting some experience at working within a football academy, and at the same time, I was still able to play semi-professionally. Yeah. So going into rugby semi-professionally just allowed me to still have the rugby side of things. And obviously, whilst playing rugby semi-professionally, I still had sort of my hand in terms of watching other coaches work, mostly without knowing um, the work that I've previously done within rugby whilst playing. I've gathered so much information of working with other coaches, and mostly I've taken the best bits of the coaches that I've worked with and yeah. then sort of built them up on my practice. And then obviously whilst working at Hull, you come across coaches that you worked with really well and then you start to build that repertoire again. Um, so it was just sort of fairly fortunate really that Hull at the time wanted to increase um, their academy going from Category 3 to Category 2. Um, and then that sort of allowed me to sort of have a step in the door and then sort of take that opportunity and work hard for it, which eventually I had to step out of playing semi-professionally to like because I was so committed to yeah. the job itself yeah that's that's awesome so I guess the last thing for me Sam is what does the future hold for you is it academy still or is it that you'd like to go back to first team or do you like that the academy maybe gives you a bit of extra time with with your family um to be honest um it's mostly one of them where it's it's a catch two twenty situation where you can have the experience of working with elite players in a fair team environment. Obviously, when crowds ever come back in, you can have that sort of buzz. I think it's you're always open to opportunities, whether that's looking at fair team perspective or an academy perspective. You've got to take the rough with the smooth. Obviously, when you're working in academy football, you have a bit more structure within your working life, which can allow you to make sure that you can still see family and friends and things like that. Whereas when you work in a fair team environment, it's very much very full on. Obviously, when you work in football, you don't really have a Christmas. But yeah. Obviously, the working period over Christmas is absolutely manic. Um, so it can have a massive effect. And obviously, it's just driven on your own life goals. And sometimes the people, they want to have their own weekends together. Luckily, I've always been involved in sport and always used to being involved in sport in some shape or sport on a week, some shape or form on a weekend. So it, doesn't really deter me from my goals. Obviously, for my goals in the future, is to try and become a better person and a better coach 
And yeah. obviously, I think from there, it'll allow me to to go on to other opportunities or to prosper with last time at Wolves. So I think ultimately, it's just being a better person and being a better coach towards the place I'm working with and with the support and staff. And obviously, usually when you work hard and you work well with other people, opportunities come come in and go. So it's going to be one of them situations where I can't really tell you where I want to be because yeah. I like to see how it goes from working hard. Yeah, and that's, that's fair enough. I think some of the other people that I've asked have all said the sort of same from in similar roles is that they just want to be the best they can be at their role. And that's and wherever that takes them, it takes them to there. So yeah, um, exactly. So yeah, thank you for that. We'll get on to the important questions now. Sam, what's your go-to cheat meal? Go-to cheat meal is pizza. And more specifically, a barbecue meat feast. Well, there, there we go. That's that's the second question ticked off of what's your favourite pizza topping? Oh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's that one ticked off. And then the final one is Marmite, love it or hate it? Hate it. I oh, can't think of anything worse in my mouth. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. Dead air. Dead air. <laughs> and there was no pun intended, trust me. <laughs> yeah, again, thank you for, for doing this then. Yeah, it's been really insightful, really good to learn what you what you do as a role. I, I don't think I've ever asked you. Obviously, we go back to university. I don't think I've ever, ever learned what, what you actually do and interesting of how it's been different from each club you've been at really enjoyed that bit so yeah again thank you thank you very much sam no thanks for having me on tom appreciate it and obviously keep in touch and uh, all the best with the podcast yeah cheers cheers mate see you soon and that's the end of episode seven i'd like to thank Sam for giving me an evening of his time to talk to me about the fundamentals of his role as a sports scientist and what got him into the role. We could have definitely gone deeper into some of the more finer details that his job entails, but I think for me, for for a first conversation, that, that was really good stuff. I definitely went into that with a different idea of what a sports scientist is. I really thought that he was just someone who worked with fitness data and presented it to the coaches. Finding out that he works closely with players and helps them understand the data was really eye-opening and shows the details that clubs, all sports clubs, go into in the background now to try and get the most out of players from the academy to the first team. I think it was really interesting and important that he didn't just have a strong focus for the future on becoming a better coach, but he also mentioned that he has a strong focus on becoming a better person. It's probably something which some of us never really think about going forward but being the best person you can be can help you to perform to the best of your abilities in whatever you do in your career whether that's being a software developer like I am or being a coach like uh, like Sam is and that's probably a good place to leave this so thank you again for listening this has been the Backroom Staff Podcast and I'll see you next time Feel free to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen podcast player or you can keep up to date with the latest podcast releases by following the Backroom Staff podcast on Twitter and Instagram using the following handle, BKRM Staff.